You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, I would like to encourage you to turn to Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 1. Uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 3. So we just round out our Christmas series. I'd like to start by reading God's Word. And um, before I do that, you might recognize this if you were, if you were with us last night. You might recognize quite a bit of the stuff that's going to come in here. I was working in the same week, and sometimes there's just some overlap. But uh, let's go ahead and turn our attention here to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things... And made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior. Oh, I kept writing. Sorry, we only went through three. We could have just kept going and going and going. Why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help? And then turn our attention to what he has for us. God, as we open your word, as we seek to hear from you, from Christ, from your prophets of old, from your word, Lord, I just ask that we can hear. That you would open our ears. That you would speak to us in words and terms that we can understand. That you would shape us by your word. And God, as we look to this holiday that the whole world gravitates to, may we see Christ as the center of of why we celebrate. And Lord, may the world see that too. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so for most of us, for most of us in here, Christmas is a holiday in which we celebrate Jesus. And amen for that. Praise the Lord. Um, because in the most immediate sense of Christmas, we remember his birth, right? Jesus' birth. That's what, what's Christmas about? Jesus' birth. It's his birthday. Okay, so there's really no point in celebrating Christmas if you're not going to celebrate his birth and maybe more importantly, his life. His birth would be meaningless if it wasn't for his life, right? We're not, so a baby was born in a manger. No, it's the life of Christ that causes us to celebrate. And so this is why I always find it really strange when the people that I know who don't call themselves Christians, who even reject Christianity, still celebrate Christmas. I don't get that at all. I find that confusing, actually. What are we, what are we doing here? Okay, but they'll tell me maybe, oh, it, 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 it's because Christmas is, you know, peace on earth. I'll hear non-Christians say that. To which I want to ask, where is this peace you speak of? I don't see it. I especially don't see it at the grocery stores or at the, the retail stores where people are killing each other to get gifts. I don't see it on the roads. I don't see the peace you speak of. Not that peace is, is bad. I, I just don't see it. And then the people will say, oh, no, no, no. Christmas is about generosity. And generosity is good. It's very good. And people are more generous at Christmas. And I hope you are more generous at Christmas. But there's a side of Christmas where we celebrate generosity, I think, in order to feel good about ourselves getting a bunch of stuff, 
Friday. Well, I, I, I gave. I think this is why we have Giving Tuesday after Black Friday. Now I can feel better because I was generous, but I have all this stuff. Did you know? So reports are already coming in. Reports are already saying that Americans are going to spend approximately $430 billion on retail items in December specifically for Christmas. That does not include food. That does not include travel. That is just for stuff, for manufactured stuff for Christmas. So yes, generosity, but man, there's this whole other thing. Some people will tell me, you know, Christmas is all about family. I mean, family is the most important. We all get together, and family is important, and it is good to get together, and that's a good reason. And spending time with family is wonderful if you get along with your family. <laughs> and yet, it seems like the time when family fights and family is stressed, and newlyweds have to figure out which parents do we go see and which grandparents, and how do we do all this? All of a sudden, it sounds nice, but then how much is stirred up? Because of Christmas. When we see Christmas only about these things, peace, generosity, family, it makes perfect sense to me that Santa would be the perfect symbol for Christmas. Right? Santa, when you have all these things for Christmas, it makes for an okay holiday. I mean, it's better than Halloween, that's for sure. <laughs> but it still falls so grossly short of what Christmas should be when we celebrate Jesus, our perfect Savior. It pales in comparison. When you read your Bible, you see some of these major themes which we've been touching on in this series. Prophets, priests, kings, those are among some of the big themes that run through the Bible. And when you see Christmas through the lens of these biblical themes, you actually see God's gift to us as the perfect prophet who's going to come as the perfect priest and as the perfect king. All the other prophets and all the other priests and all the other kings, they all fall short. They cannot fix our broken world. They cannot bring redemption, only this fantastic gift of Jesus Christ. Because God promised to save us from this curse, from our sins, from the broken world. That's awesome. He promised it. He would be with us forever, and we could be with him forever. But it's going to take a better prophet. It's going to take a promised priest and a victorious king. As a matter of fact, when we read the Bible, and I hope that you are, it becomes incredibly clear that all the prophets, priests, and kings that came before us, they all failed. I mean, like, but from those patterns that we have, because they, they do create some patterns, it shows us and we, when we see that we need this perfect prophet and this perfect priest and this perfect king, if there's going to be any salvation at all, that's what it's going to take. These are what we need to see. These are what we need to think about if there's going to be any Christmas at all. If you don't have those things, you, ha you don't have Christmas. Those things are a necessity for this holiday. And as it turns out, Jesus is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. He's the one in which, by all this that he's doing, allows him to become our perfect savior. 
the Savior that God promised came. His name is Jesus. And I got to tell you, that makes for a good Christmas. That makes for a good holiday. So the book of Hebrews, it shows us that Jesus is our Savior. Yay, that's kind of the whole point of the book of Hebrews. But it goes on, it shows us that he's also the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. And in the text that I read in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, we actually see him performing all three of these functions right here in these three verses. And if we would have kept reading, we would have saw him doing that a bunch. But you guys all, uh, I know you all wanted me to keep reading. We all also have activities to get to. So we stopped. We're going to see all of these things right here, which is how we know that, that this book is telling us about our Savior. Let's just read it again. I'll stop at the end of three this time, I hope. Let's see how it goes. Long ago, see if you can see it, see if you can see the prophet, priest, and king here. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see right off the bat, we'll just go through all three of them. If you're taking notes, we see that Jesus is the better prophet. Okay, we see that in the first and right here in the second verses, we see this. Notice that the author first points out that we had prophets in the past. We had these former prophets, and we heard from them. They were the men who communicated the revelation from God to us. They showed us who God is by speaking God's words to us. God put his word in their mouth. They spoke it. Deuteronomy 18, 18 it shows us that God promised through Moses that God had a better prophet in mind. It says, I will, raise up, uh, I will raise up from them a prophet like you, meaning like Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I commanded. So when it comes to prophecy and promises like this, the Bible actually shows us a near-far type fulfillment. We've been talking about that a lot in this series. Uh, the near fulfillment in this case would be other men like Moses that have raised up, other prophets that we read about, other people who speak on behalf of God, sinful men. God uses them. Some of them were faithful. Some of them had some stumbles and issues. That would be the near fulfillment, right? But it's not the perfect fulfillment. It's not the final fulfillment. They would be a pattern. We actually find in Hebrews the word uh, type. They would be a type of what the ultimate fulfillment would look like. So we could start to get a sense of who these guys were so that when we got to the far fulfillment, that would be the one that's the perfect fulfillment, we would see the better one. The pattern would show us kind of, a, of examples, but the far fulfillment is the better. Right. So look at verse 2 in these last days. Jesus is spoken to us by his son. That's the far fulfillment. Jesus is the better. Notice the author is calling the time which he wrote this and the time in which the people heard this here in the book of Hebrews in the first century, the last days. So every time people ask me, are we in the last days? They'll say, yep, the Bible tells me we are in the last days. In these last days, 
God has, that's past tense, appointed Jesus. We're in the last days, and Jesus is now the revelation, or, the, or he's making known to us who God is. Right? It's not through these other people, these prophets, it's through Jesus. Jesus was the Word, the revelation, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14. The apostles observed His glory. They were the witness of Christ on earth, the, the revelation in the flesh that we could see, that they could write about, that would make known who God is to us. Right? And if there's any doubt that Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.18, one's going to come after Moses. Listen to what Jesus said about Himself. John 12, 49 through 50. Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Or how about John 14, 9 through 10? Jesus said, For the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his work. Now, Jesus is not saying that he is the Father. Okay, don't make that mistake. He's not saying that the Father is Jesus. He's saying that they have such a perfect unity, a unity untainted by sin, untainted by selfishness, untainted by all the gross stuff that causes us to not to have that unity with God. They don't have that problem. They have such a perfect unity. And also, they have the same substance, the same essence. They're not the same, but they're of the same stuff. And the early church had tremendous debate and discussion over this. And so the only way I can really help you to see it is to say they basically have the same DNA. They're not the same person, but they have the same DNA. And anytime anybody goes, well, how can that be? Just look to identical twins. They're not the same person. They have different preferences, different ideas, but they're same in the DNA. If you'll at least allow me that illustration. I know it breaks down in places, but it's at least helpful for us to, to understand. So to know the Father means you must know Christ. Christ is the one who reveals the Father to us. He's the one who makes him known. He's the revelation of God to creation. And this is what the second part of Hebrews 1, 3 is saying. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Jesus is the revelation of God to his creation. Jesus is how we can know God. And get this, when Jesus appeared on the island of Patmos... There at the end, he saw John to give him this last revelation. And we have this recorded in Revelation 1.17. It says, Jesus, speaking to John on the island, I was dead, but look. And if, if you write in your Bible, it might be worth underlining, but look, I am alive forever and ever. So even now, Jesus is the visual witness which we are called to look upon to see. Not a message through a speaking prophet. Jesus himself. Look 
to Jesus. And these witnesses, these apostles saw Jesus. He is the one for us to see and for us to hear and for us to experience. One day we will see with our own eyes what these witnesses saw when we stand face to face before Jesus. These are the things Jesus said. So either Jesus is a liar, a complete kook nut and a crazy person, just lying, or he literally is the revelation of God for us to see and understand God by. He literally is who he says he is, which means he literally is the perfect fulfillment of God's promise of the perfect prophet and the revelator to us. He reveals himself to us. So, if we fall into the trap or the temptation to turn to any other earthly prophets who are still sinning, who will still die, we are turning to the pattern and not the fulfillment, suggesting that we don't believe that Jesus is the fulfillment. We're still waiting for another. Here's the pattern, but that's just what it is. Look to the promised prophet. Okay, the same thing is true for the priest. So look at the second part of verse 3. It says, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, what's this business about making purification for sin? Well, that points us to two things. Okay, put your mind in this priestly language. First, the payment for sin is death. That's just how it is. Animals had to die as a substitute for Adam's sin when God had to kill the animals to make clothes for Adam and Eve. Noah offered a burnt offering. Okay, that's just not some pretty nice incense stick. That's a flaming, burning animal as a sacrifice to God. That is death. And so many others had to make sacrifice before God. This was, and then God comes along and he institutes the law, which gives pages and pages and, and pages of instructions for these substitutionary type offerings. That's what's going on here. So we see an offering. We see it as a substitutionary offering. Jesus is making that payment. Second, God instituted priests on behalf of the people to serve as kind of an intermediary for the people, in between the people. In Exodus 30.10, God commanded once a year, this is the big one, there's lots of little sacrifices, but this is the doozy. Once a year, Aaron is to perform the atonement ceremony for the altar. Throughout your generations, he is to perform the atonement ceremony for it once a year with the blood for the sin offering for the atonement on the horns. Okay, this is a thing that happened over and over and over and over again. Every single year, the priest has to make these offerings for sin. Okay, why? Why do I have to keep doing this? Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This is just a pattern. Right? So we can see the pattern, the requirement of death for sin. And so now we have two patterns. Okay, the first pattern is the pattern of the priest. I mean, we're not, not talking about the pattern of the prophets, but now just the priest. We have the pattern of the priest himself, okay, with an anticipation of a better intermediary one, a better Aaron to come. And we have the pattern of the sacrifice for the atonement of sin with a better one to come. And the, and the patterns just aren't cutting it. They're just not right. So as to show us the perfect that is to come. So Jesus is the better and perfect priest. 
Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 says, This is the kind of high priest we need. Okay, this can be helpful. What do we need? One who's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins. Well, wait a minute. Who do we have that's that? Only Jesus, only one who has no sin, only one who is perfect. Otherwise, we only have this imperfect pattern. The one we need is Jesus. Jesus is better than any of these high priests. And then, he himself is the better offering because he provided himself as the offering, which, by the way, we just read that today. We don't think much of it. But what a shocking surprise if you were to hear that for the first time. <clears throat> Wait, the perfect priest offered himself as a sacrifice? Verse 27 in the Hebrews text I had read, uh, Hebrews seven twenty-seven. It, it goes on. I want to back up a little bit. Since he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. No high priest has ever done that, ever. And even if he did, it wouldn't be sufficient because it'd be a sinful offering. It would be a sinner. It wouldn't work. All those other animals already showed us the pattern. It wouldn't be ideal. It just wouldn't work. We needed this perfect sacrifice offered by a perfect priest. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the priest, and he's even the provider of the sacrifice. Because he's the perfect priest, and because he's offered up this perfect sacrifice, there's no longer a need for the constant labor of all these sacrifices year after year after year after year. The other priests had never had time to sit down and rest. They were just busy. It was just a reminder constantly of the bloodbath, the slaughterhouse that was death at the temple for your sin and my sin, for the sins of the people. There was no time for rest, no rest for the weary. That's why there was no chair in the temple furniture. There's no need for a chair. No one will be sitting in it. But look at what it says in Hebrews 3. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. He sat down. Hebrews 12.2 says it like this, and holy smokes, get this in your head. For the joy that lay before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this raises a serious question for it, does it not? This raises a serious question we have to address. How does one sacrifice oneself and then still be able to sit? Shouldn't Jesus have been dead didn't the cross kill him? Hebrews 13.20 gives us the answer to this question. It says, The God of peace brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. God made a covenant. He made a promise. He fulfilled that promise. God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus raised on the third day just as he promised he would. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, just as John the Baptist preached in John 1.29. Jesus is the same perfect slaughtered Lamb worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father and open it in Revelation 5. That's Jesus. Jesus is the promised perfect priest and the promised perfect offering. 
And now, let's look at the king, but let's ask this question. Where did this priest sit after he made the perfect sacrifice? Oh, he sat on a throne. Because that's where kings sit, right? Look at Hebrews 3 again. After making the purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that even mean? I mean, it sounds very kingly. It sounds nice. But like, let's really drill in. What does it mean? It's a way of saying that he's in the highest position of honor. There is no other more honorable place he could sit. He's in a position of authority. And it implies that he is reigning as the son, positioned as the king and the intercessor, them together. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, God promised King David the pattern. He said this, When your time has come and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you from your descendants, one who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build my house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Once again, we have a near-far situation. It's really easy to see this one. In the near fulfillment of this promise, literally, a physical descendant, a son of David, built a temple. It was King Solomon. We call that Solomon's temple. But it was a pattern. It's just a picture of a better thing to come. Okay, the far view is Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise. He's the promised king that they were longing for in Psalm 2. He's holding the iron scepter in Psalm 2, 9. The same king we see in Revelation 12, holding the iron scepter. He's the fulfillment of this promise. He's the son of David who entered into Jerusalem. You know, riding on this gentle and riding on a donkey. He's the same king we see hanging on the cross with a sign over his head that read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Jesus is the perfect king to whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Which, incidentally, is the same scene we see in Revelation 5. Because he's the fulfillment of that promise. We don't see King David in Revelation 5. We see Jesus. He's the perfect king. Jesus is the promised perfect king because he's the king of all other kings. Jesus' dominion, unlike any other king that has ever lived, is the whole world. King of all kings. And he reigns on the throne forever. Forever. So Jesus is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king all in one. The Bible showed us we needed all those three, and then we see it that it's all culminating in one person, Jesus Christ. And that is how Jesus is our perfect Savior. That's how he can save us. That's how he can do all this. So when we see Jesus for who he says he is, when we really understand who this Jesus is from his word, from all that he has revealed to us, suddenly he's much more magnificent, is he not? Suddenly Christmas takes on a whole new shape. We're celebrating the birth of a baby in the manger, but the birth of the baby seems insignificant in light of who Jesus is. That's why we celebrate his birthday, because of his life. His life makes his birthday amazing. 
But in our sinful flesh, it becomes so easy and so tempting to just go along you know, with the Christmas flow. Let's just make Christmas about having fun, watching great movies that we watch you know, every year, and we love them, and pretty soon we know all the lines, and we quote the lines. Let's just do that. That's what we do. That's why we don't love new Christmas movies. Let's make it about finding the perfect gift and seeing the joy in someone else's eyes when we give them the perfect piece of tangible junk. It's about the perfect decorations. I mean, like, we really got to go all out. In fact, we were just reading in the news that a couple days ago there was a fire or a, a call to the Kaysville Fire Department. Someone driving on I-15 looked over and saw a house completely engulfed in flames. They called the fire department. The Kaysville Fire Department raced out there because they thought this house was burning to the ground, only to discover a house completely covered in Christmas lights like the Griswold house. This is what we are tempted to make Christmas about, one-upping each other with how much our houses can look like they're on fire. We try to have the perfect meals. And inevitably, some of us will take pictures of those meals and send them to other people. Why? So other people can feel bad about their meals because our meals are better. We want to make Christmas about being this great and perfect thing. We're trying to make this perfect holiday. We're just tempted to fall in line. We're just tempted to see that Christmas, you know, is about Santa. But in light of who Jesus is, Santa looks really silly, doesn't he? We used to tell my kids when they were younger that Santa is the clown that helps us celebrate Jesus' birthday. (laughs) We need to keep our affections on the perfect prophet and the perfect priest, and the perfect king who is our perfect savior. When we do that, that makes for a perfect Christmas. That makes for the right kind of holiday. That brings it all together where it is supposed to be for all the right reasons, and it helps us to shed off all the wrong ones. Some of you were kind of thinking through like your plans for Christmas, your shopping for Christmas. It's not too late for us to shift our affections to Jesus. There's certainly time. So here's my challenge, and this is what I'm going to end on. My challenge to you in light of what we've seen from God's Word, in light of who Jesus is, I have two challenges for us. The first is that for the next 48 hours, if at all possible, fight against the distractions to cheapen Christmas. Don't see it for all that stuff. See it for Christ. Keep your thoughts on Christ this Christmas. I mean, his name is in the name of the holiday. Focus on Christ. So as you share a meal with your family, as you're together with your earthly family, eating earthly food, don't forget that our Savior is drawing us to the most wonderful banquet with your faith family, blood-bought, saved, children of the King, that will be better than anything you have ever tasted in your life. And we'll go without end. Keep in mind that. The family meal is the pattern. There is a better to come. Remember that Jesus, through the salvation that he has made available to us, has adopted us into God's family. 
So our earthly family is a pattern for good or bad of the better family that we get to enjoy now and then in the more perfect in eternity. As you open gifts, remember that God gave us the best gift. His son who would die to be our savior. God loved the world in this way that he gave us this gift. Every time you're opening a present, go, well, this is just sort of a pattern. The little bit of, the little tiny bit of joy that comes from opening this up and going, wow, is just a little pattern of the more perfect, the better joy we should experience when we accept that gift of Christ's salvation and eternal life. See it that way with every gift. That's a pattern. It's going to be better. That's a pattern. There's a better thing coming. And if you have tasted and enjoyed the gift of salvation, thank God for it. Thank God for it. As we seek peace on earth, goodwill toward men, we're supposed to see a pattern of love and charity at Christmas time, of the better peace that will come between us and God and us and man. That pattern seems a little marred right now, but it's just a pattern. There's a better to come. Christmas should be a pattern to show us the better thing that's coming. My challenge to you is take 48 hours and focus on the better, not the pattern. Now I have a second challenge for you. I want you to fight the temptation, and it's big, to think that you only need a single day every year to celebrate Jesus. It's not enough. Jesus is so remarkable, he's so amazing that a single day just isn't going to do it. Even one day a week, one hour a week, isn't going to do it. Not even... Twice per week, we're starting that Friday night service. So we'll have Sunday morning and Friday night. That's not going to be enough to really put our focus and attention on Christ. It's not going to cut it. Even if we worship Jesus every single hour of every single day for the rest of eternity, it wouldn't be enough. He's too great for that. We're barely scratching the surface. Our worship now is but a pattern for the better worship service we're going to attend for eternity. There's a better worship time coming. But I want to challenge you to press into even the pattern, even to taste it and experience it now, to enjoy Jesus. So I want you to just consider as you're just thinking about where you've come, where you're going, how do I draw closer to Jesus in 2024 than I did in 2023? How do I make this pattern in my life even better that I will get to experience it a little more as I anticipate with great longing the worship that we will have with our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, for eternity. I mean, you're not going to get to the better right away unless you pass from this side into eternity. But you'll still be so greatly blessed by it. How could you not be? Let's make every day Every hour, every minute, Christmas, and even better. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for all these fulfilled promises. What a blessing. I thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the revealed witness of who Jesus is. I thank you for Christmas. Lord, I thank you that we live in a world that, that encourages a celebration of Christmas. But God, I ask that you would, you would transform our community, that that celebration will be Jesus-focused. Lord, for so the next 48 hours, keep us absolutely mindful of you, our Savior, the better to come in so many, in every way. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we praise you. And if at any point our celebration becomes idolatrous for the wrong things, just steer us back to you. Just remind us Christmas is about Jesus Christ. And so should every other day and every other hour and every other minute draw our affections to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.